Okay, uh, we're going to get started. So welcome to you all um, to this very special uh, joint event uh, hosted by the Association of British Science Writers and the Science Museum. My name is Bob Ward. I'm the Policy and Communications Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at London School of Economics. But I had worked as a journalist in, a, in my distant past, and I'm a member of the Committee of the Association of British Science Writers. So it's my job to introduce the main event and the main actors for the evening. Uh, we have about an hour. And this is an in-conversation with Dr. Patrick Valance, the Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK Government. Uh, Patrick uh, took over his post in April this year, so this is one of his first public outings and maybe the first time where he's facing a public audience, or an audience that's a mixture of journalists and the public, so possibly the most hostile uh, audience you could imagine. Uh, so, um, but we're very lucky to have Patrick here. Patrick joined, uh, became CSA having uh, had a long and distinguished career in medicine, uh, lastly at uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, but previously to that, he was a, a uh, an academic uh, researcher at University College London, and he's a fellow of both the Academy of Medical Sciences and a fellow of the Royal Society. I think he's going to uh, talk a little bit about his own background um, as part of this. Uh, and we're very lucky that uh, Roger Highfield, Dr. Roger Highfield, the uh, uh, Director of External Affairs at the Science Museum, is here to guide the proceedings and to uh, ask Patrick quest um, some questions. Roger, before he came to the Science Museum, uh, had a long and distinguished career as a journalist. He was executive editor of the New Scientist, but spent many years in Fleet Street as the science editor of the Daily Telegraph, where we worked briefly together and still remain friends. So what we're going to do uh, over the next hour is we're going to start, Patrick's going to make some introductory remarks for five minutes, then Roger's going to spend about 20 minutes asking Patrick some questions, and then we'll throw it open to the audience for you all to ask questions. So you have time to think of some questions. Uh, we're going to, everything's on the record, tonight, but we're going to try and keep it informal. But just to be fair, if you're a journalist, please say who you are and who you're affiliated with, just to, so that Patrick is not blindsided by people masquerading as if they're members of the public but are really uh, looking for a, uh, a scoop. So um, we're going to uh, stop on time at 8 o'clock. So Roger will be ruthless in keeping to the time. But now it's my great pleasure to welcome to stage Dr. Patrick Valance and Dr. Roger Highfield. And please show your appreciation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Get started. So Patrick, yeah, I mean, yeah. just give us a brief introduction um, for really for the general latest yeah. audience about the the role of the government chief scientific advisor. Well, it's, it's so nice to start a, um, a talk, actually, with the introduction of a hostile audience and journalists <laughs> masquerading as members of the public. So that's a nice, relaxing way to start. Um, well, you, you may wonder what on earth the government chief scientific advisor does. 
And in its simplest incarnation, what my job description is, is to give advice to the uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet on all matters of science. So uh, the little bit of all matters of science is quite challenging. And uh, one of the things I have found out in my time so far is uh, I've done enough extra reading and learning that I feel as though I need another degree given to me. And I hope that it's true that learning staves off Alzheimer's. Um, my... Uh, areas that we cover in terms of trying to give advice into government are science for policy, so ensuring that policy decisions in government and across government can be advised by the best available scientific evidence, so to try to get evidence base into policy making, and that of course is led by a network of chief scientific advisors in various departments, as well as my role as government chief scientific advisor. The second area uh, is science for resilience. So whether that's the resilience of the country to natural disasters, floods, and so on, or whether it's uh, to threats, such as um, uh, the events in Salisbury and Amesbury. And, and in fact, those events were uh, things that I encountered very early in my tenure um, uh, with the Novichok episode, uh, which, of course, becomes quite all-consuming in terms of uh, trying to get the science advice into the right place. The third area is science for the economy, and uh, this is particularly important at the moment for obvious reasons, but it's also important because um, the UK has been unbelievably good at uh, research, basic research, and the ability to get publications out, and we punch well above our weight. And we've been not bad at translating that research into economic benefit, but there's absolutely room for improvement to think about how we could be better at translating some of the output of our great universities into uh, things that are beneficial for society and beneficial for the economy. And then the fourth area is, is, is a new one that, that, that um, I think is incredibly important. We're going to have a big push on it in 2019, which is science for citizens, to make sure that all of this is rooted in a reality that we live in a very scientifically dynamic and importantly scientific world, uh, whether that's as users of science, uh, going to see the doctor or how we get from A to B, uh, whether it's as demanders of science, problems that we have that we think science ought to be able to give us an answer for, or, or in fact as participants in science, either as professional scientists, but increasingly, of course, as members of the public in a variety of scientific uh, enterprises which require us all to be involved, or all of us could become involved, whether that's monitoring wildlife or whether it's actually using online gaming to solve problems uh, in, in, in crystal structures of proteins. So science and citizens is the third bit, fourth bit. The, the three areas that sort of... that. Um, you know, frankly, are external influences which are incredibly important in how I have to think about things at the moment are around the, the uh, Brexit, of course, uh, the formation of uh, UKRI, the new funding agency which brings together all of the other funding agencies in the UK and the opportunities that presents, and the industrial strategy that the government set out, including the ambition to increase our funding for science from 1.7% of GDP, which is low by international standards, up to the OECD average of 2.4% of GDP, uh, and then on to 3%. So those are the three things, if you like, which form um, uh, quite an important backdrop to the sorts of uh, things I need to think about. And in terms of areas of science, you know, it's the usual things that keep coming back with a few new things uh, thrown in. So there's no doubt that uh, climate remains a huge area to uh, think about in government. 
There's absolutely no doubt that genetics uh, is crucial for how we think about all sorts of things in the UK, and of course that includes moving into areas like uh, gene editing, topical at the moment. And the third area which is pervading everything, of course, is the whole data revolution and where artificial intelligence may fit in. So those are areas which are key, and the manifestation of the latter can be everything from how we really transition into a world of uh, mobility that looks totally different from the one we have now with autonomous vehicles and interconnected um, uh, um, things through to uh, the impact that it might have on decisions made in everyday life. So that uh, is a little outline of some of the things that, that, that I'm thinking about and some of the things that are occupying me, Roger. Well, let's grab, grab a seat, Patrick. Let's, let's make it a bit more relaxed, a bit more informal. Um, I'm hoping that in our Q&A we can just gallop through um, a lot of territory um, and you, it, it's an amazing time to be chief scientist. It's, I, I don't envy you at all with, um, it's difficult enough with external pressures like uh, Brexit and so on, changing the machinery of the, the science base. And I was amazed that you didn't actually mention the other preoccupation of recent chief scientists, which is badgers. There's always the badger issue, actually, um, and your predecessors. There was a wonderful report on that recently. <laughs> <laughs> but let, let's just just wind back a bit because I think you know, in in the museum, we're very interested in engaging with young people, getting people uh, interested in careers in science and so on. Just tell us a little bit about what got you on the path into medicine, and then where you are now. Well, I think I think it was it, I got on the path of science before I got into the path on on the path to medicine actually, and, and I was um, I was a, a horribly nerdy child I think in retrospect. I mean I was interested in in chemistry sets. I was interested in little um, uh, making sort of electrical circuits on things, making crystal radios and things like that. And I had two brothers who thought I was deeply weird I think because they were only interested <laughs> in only interested in football. Um, uh, and I was absolutely fascinated with the two museums here. I was fascinated by dinosaurs at a very young age, and then I became completely fascinated with all things to do with space. And so it's actually been rather fun to walk around the um, uh, Sun exhibition today uh, and learn about that. So I, I think it's very difficult to say what actually triggered it. Was it a teacher I, I, or something uh, well, like that? Or? Um, it, so there were definitely teachers along the way who, who absolutely amplified that. And there were definitely a teacher at, at um, secondary school who turned chemistry from being a really hard slog for me into something which was both inspirational and exciting, even though I'd started, as I say, with an interest in chemistry, I think organic chemistry suddenly blew through me and I couldn't get it. Yeah. And it was one particular teacher, I called Mr. Clark, who completely. When I did it, it was a lot view. of blowing things up, which I found quite exciting. Well, that's fun, but that, that's not organic <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> So that, that got you on, on the path. And obviously, engagement, um, you know, you've alluded to, it, is a critical issue. And I suppose, actually, um, given the events of this week, with, the first, uh, with this announcement in China um, that we've had gene-edited babies, um, we've worked very hard in the UK through you know, the whole uh, trajectory from the Warnock committee to the HFEA yeah. to uh, the Donaldson report on cloning to always with, with re reproductive technologies keep the public engaged in the conversation. Do, how much of a setback do you think it is this um, sort of bolt from the blue about CRISPR in China? 
Well, uh, it, very difficult to know how much of a setback it is in terms of societal expectation and, and, and concerns, and very difficult to know actually exactly what's happened, yeah. to be honest. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know There's any still more, a lot than, of skeptics, I don't know what, any more yeah. than you do yeah. about what, what's really happened. But um, a, a few things to say. The first thing is that, of course, CRISPR is actually, which is the technique used to do the gene editing, is actually very easy. So there is a, a very uh, straightforward way to do these things now, which there hasn't been in the past. That does mean that there's a risk that this is going to be done quite widely. Mm. Um, the second thing to say is, um, in terms of is there a, if it's true that the, what's happened is that they've um, made a mutation of the so-called CCR5 gene, which is the, which encodes a protein which um, stops HIV becoming infective. That actually is a well-known approach to trying to tackle HIV. So there's a mm. drug against CCR5. Um, actually, people have done genetic modification of cells against CCR5 to try to uh, block HIV. Um, and in fact, the only patient um, who's really truly been cured of, of HIV was with a bone marrow transplant of CCR5 cells from somebody who had the mutation mm -hmm. naturally. So, so in terms of, you know, is that a good target to try and stop HIV? Yes. The, the real challenge is this is, you know, profoundly uncertain territory when one's looking at um, modifying a gene, potentially in the germline, yeah. So, you know, an in, in inherited gene. So although there are um, uh, people across the population who have this CCR5 mutation naturally, we don't yet know that CRISPR does this thing without causing other effects. Yeah. We know CRISPR can have some off-target effects potentially. Um, so uh, if you take the Nuffield Bioethics Report, which I thought was a really good report, it said there are two conditions you have to have. One is that it needs to be uh, in, the, um, uh, in the spirit of the welfare of the individual. We don't know that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not obvious that this is in the welfare of the individual. And the second is that it shouldn't um, uh, do something in society which leads uh, for marginalization or division. And we don't know it does that either. So it doesn't meet you know, yeah. a priori, those, those um, conditions that the Nuffield report gave. So I think it's, it's extremely premature to rush into this. And um, it's experimental in all sorts of ways, including these are not children who've got HIV or at risk of HIV. It's making them resistant yeah. to something that actually there are all sorts of other ways to prevent yourself getting. So I think it's, it's, it's a pretty extreme... Um, experiment that's going to cause um, a lot of uh, potential disruption to a field which has a lot of promise in other, in other areas. I mean, it's interesting seeing how the dialogue about germline gene therapy passing genetic changes on to future generations has changed in the last 20 years because um, I think we've actually got Tracy the sheep in our collection, which... Uh, uh, using old-fashioned genetic modification methods where you were just sort of dropping genes into the genome. Wherever. You were doing it yeah. to hundreds and yeah. hundreds of embryos, hoping that one of them would pick up the gene, uh, you know, with a certain sort of target and so on. So th those days, when people said germline gene therapy, it was just a total no-no because you just couldn't predict what the effects were. CRISPR's changed that, but there's still all these concerns you were, you were talking about. But it's definitely... People are talking about germline therapy yeah. now, whereas they just wouldn't countenance it, would they? Well, that's enough of a report. It talks about germline. It talks about what are the conditions under which germline therapy becomes um, becomes something that could be ethically acceptable. And, and the first of those is, is is absolutely key, which is it has to be in the welfare interests of the individual. And that raises all sorts of questions about why you're doing it. You know, what is the welfare 
uh, gain or maintenance that you're looking for. And, and it also speaks to the you know, age-old problem with every single therapeutic intervention man has ever invented, which is side effects. Yeah. You know, we don't know yet that CRISPR doesn't cause some other um, change which could be important. I mean, it looks pretty good when it works, yeah. but um, I think we just don't know. And that's a big step to take for something which is not treating a life-threatening disease. It's actually causing a resistance to something you haven't got and you, you may not be at risk of getting. I mean, you could, uh, looking at it a different way, we actually, we've just sadly, well, not sadly, but we've closed our IVF. We had a temporary exhibition on IVF. We had Louise Brown in the museum on her 40th birthday. There are between 6 million and 10 million uh, IVF children, adults now on the planet. Even with IVF, the it's technically an experiment. You know, we haven't seen that whole cohort from birth to death. We don't quite know whether there could be late-onset effects from cultivating human embryos in the laboratory and so on. So it's, um, yeah, we're in an extraordinary time, and now we've taken the next uh, step. Anyway, it sounds like the, the bottom line is, we, we obviously, we do have to know much more about yeah. what's actually happened before we... Uh, yeah. I mean, well, one of the interesting things, I mean, you may know it, but I mean, there's a village in Derbyshire uh, called Eam, where, where, where in the uh, time of the bubonic plague, uh, the village got infected, and I think it was a vicar in the, in the village actually um, put a cordon around the village to stop people getting infected outside, and they transferred food across it. It's one of the first examples, actually, of sort of barrier methods mm -hmm. to control infection. Um, but uh, a follow-up study of that, the people who live there now, many of whom who've, who are descended from the original population, found that population had a very high prevalence of CCR5 mutation in it. Not obvious, actually, why that's true from a bubonic plague stress, and it could have been that that was another, another viral disease which caused, caused the particular problem. But uh, there's a rather sort of curious little um, yeah. uh, position in a village in Derbyshire. Of course, one of the big areas where... Um, we, we hope AI will make a big difference and machine learning is in the health sector. Um, but equally, as you were alluding to, there are concerns particularly about personal data and how it's going to be used. And of course, there's also, for my money, rather a lot of hype. There seems to be this sort of expectation that if there's a lot of unstructured data out there, if you just throw a deep neural yeah, net yeah, yeah. at it, magical things will appear. Yeah. Um, do you think the, 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 the conversation is, you know, are, are people across, first of all, have they got a realistic expectation of what AI um, can deliver? Um, and how many concerns are yeah. there about, particularly about health data and so on? Well, on, on the first of those, I mean, there is a bit of a tendency at the moment that the answer's AI, now what's the question? Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, one has to think quite carefully about where it does apply. Um, on the other hand, I think it's, probably true that AI is going to be profoundly more disruptive um, in a more limited number of areas than people think. So I think it's not going to be the answer to all sorts of um, problems across health. It's extremely good now at certain things. So it's very good at looking at patterns that you otherwise wouldn't pick up. So great at looking at patterns of data. Great, therefore, at looking at patterns on histology slides mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, great at thinking about ways of process optimization 
um, not so good at some of the other things that people look at. You know, I don't think we're going to start designing drugs by AI, for example, in any, you know, re really designing them soon. You'll do bits of it. So I think there are bits where it's going to be extremely applicable and bits where it's going to be rather difficult to, to, to so do. So things it. like cancer diagnostics and things Well, there may know. be bits of it where you get it. So you might see a, a pattern across a series of diagnostic tests that you otherwise wouldn't pick up that would allow you to do that. Um, yeah. Or it may be in the histology. Uh, you might see something you others wouldn't see. So there, there may be uh, a place like that where it, it, it could be valuable, um, but, but it's not going to be take a mass of data, chuck AI at it, and come up with your answers. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, the challenge, in a way, for the data sets within the NHS is to get them into a shape where they could be used for these sorts of things. Um, because this will become an important, I think it will become an important yeah. part of, of life. The old mantra, rubbish in, rubbish out. Exactly, counts. exactly. And the, the other thing that I think, um, personally, I, I would argue for where AI, sh how we should think about AI in something like healthcare is, when, when one's ill, you know, it, it, you're at the most vulnerable position you could ever be in, in your life. And um, the aim of AI should be to allow more human interaction. In other words, it should free up time for people to be able mm, to mm. deal with the other aspects of healthcare that do require uh, hum human interaction. We shouldn't think of it, I think, as a sort of replacement somehow. But the, uh, I, I still think there's a big issue about managing public expectations yeah, with AI, because I think with narrow AI, AI doing a very specific job, it is amazing what can be done. And actually, um, you know, we've all... I think the most extraordinary example is Demis Hassabis and his AlphaGo teaching Go Masters new moves. That is extraordinary. But most of it is very, very, very narrowly focused. But at the back of, but, but the public have got Terminator, yeah. Skynet, HAL uh, at the back of their minds. And it's, they're making an enormous leap uh, there. And how, how are we going to sort of square that circle, do you think? Well, so the engagement? other thing to say is, I mean, you take, it, take them like Go, there are, there are some rules. So, I mean, you know, that's yeah, again yeah. where AI community, there are some rules. You may not understand yeah. all of the rules, but there are rules. And then, of course, some of the things people are thinking about using AI for, we, you can't because there aren't the rules in the same way. Um, I think you're right. There is a massive over-expectation of what it can deliver. I, I think that's not that unusual with new technologies. The challenge is not to make that um, over-expectation suddenly turn into such a fear that we don't actually use it for what we can use it for. Yeah. I mean, I think one thinks of the nanoscience um, business of the worries of grey goo that sort of somehow yes. led to huge public reaction against something which was never going to do what, 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 what was thought at the time. And I think that's one of the dangers of AI, that, that, that um, because it's seen to be do everything, replace doctors, you know, have, have automated... Um, uh, Things that could go terribly wrong and cause problems mm -hmm. that, that that somehow um, we should we should restrict it. Now that said, there is one element that I think we absolutely need to make sure we get on top of in terms of the uh, regulation and use of this, which is um, AI will come, as we know, with the inherent biases of people who are writing the algorithms yep. or the societies that write the algorithms. So one can end up institutionalizing. Uh, predetermined bias, and, and that is something I think is going to be an extremely important thing to understand. We had a fascinating okay. chat in the museum between Bill Gates and Will I Am. I was here for or it. Or Will I Am and Bill I Am, yeah. as, uh, as yeah. uh, Will I Am said. Yeah. And, and he made this point we actually need coders from 
diverse coders, and we have to make sure the data sets capture the reality and are not partial in some way. And, but presumably the NHS is probably the best stab we, we've got at dealing with that problem because it is a national Well, the data problem. ought to be unbiased. I mean, the data, the data ought to be extremely good. If we, if we could access the NHS data properly, you ought to be able to use that first, first and foremost to improve the NHS. Yeah. You know, that's really what the aim should be. How can the data that uh, all of us have given into the creation of this national uh, um, institution and this nas national uh, resource can be used to improve the NHS if we can access and use the data properly? So just to keep galloping through different areas, and then I'll, I'll open up to uh, the audience, but I guess we've got to... I'm not going to talk about the, the other B word, badges, but Brexit... Um, I have to say, I've yet to encounter a scientist who's thrilled at the prospects of Brexit. I don't know, is there one in the audience? No. Um, uh, and I know there's just such an enormous nest of complicated issues, whether it's Euratom or ITER or, uh, you know, the future participation in future programs and so on. So just what, what are your kind of big hopes and what are your fears for, for what's going to happen well, in the next year Well, the biggest fear by far is, uh, I mean, not on the specifics, I'll come on to the specifics, but the biggest general fear is the UK being seen as inward-looking and not open to international collaboration. Mm. I mean, that is an absolute disaster in science. Science depends on uh, movement of individuals, it depends of ideas coming in, it depends on diversity, it depends on the ability to collaborate with people across the world. So any notion that comes out of this that somehow we are a parochial, inward-looking science establishment is, I think, profoundly damaging. Now, in terms of um, uh, uh, the specifics of, uh, of, of Brexit, so that's a sort of perception thing that needs to be dealt with and made sure that doesn't happen. Um, you know, we, we've had very close and important ties with European scientists over a long period. It works pretty well as a yeah. system, and, um, uh, and the money is an important part of it, but actually it's the collaborations and the interactions which are important. And I think, you know, it, in fairness, the Prime Minister's been absolutely clear that she wants the closest possible association with the European programs, and that is absolutely what we should strive, strive to get. And um, uh, that's why, um, as several people have pointed out um, this week, actually, you know, complete no-deal Brexit, which leaves you with potentially no access to European programs, mm. is going to be very damaging. But do you think that you're... Are you optimistic at the moment that we're going <laughs> to keep those... Uh... <laughs> Just a little question yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you asking me? I'm optimistic about. Um, <laughs> Hang on, could someone yeah. check the headlines? Yeah. Yeah. It might have changed in the last half. No, no. I mean it's yeah. it's such a dynamic, um, difficult uh, situation at the moment. But I suppose the thing that compounds the agony for you, because crikey, you have picked a, quite a time to be chief scientific advisor, is of course we're 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 retooling the machinery of research at the same time. Yes. We, we've got the UKRI has just been launched. Um, it, the structure of research is changing. Um, how, how's that all fitting in? I mean, have, 
I'm just amazed there's the capacity in the system to deal with a big reorganisation and the challenges of Brexit at the same time. Well, so I think, I think the, the um, ideas behind UKRI were, were really carefully thought through, and I thought you know, the nurse report was, was important, it got all the things right, and it absolutely speaks to something which I think is, is important in modern science, which is um, most of the problems that, that one tries to face are um, need multiple disciplines to come together to try and tackle them. And so I think you know, one of the overarching principles of UKRI was how could you get the research, research councils to think about interdisciplinary work better, I think is a really good aim and one that, that, that could be incredibly helpful. <laughs> Um, I think the other ambitions to try and get uh, the closer link between um, some of the innovation and development aspects of research with Innovate UK and so on, and again, it's the right thing to do because, as I said in, in the introduction, we're not as good as we should be at getting that side of things right. Um, now. Uh, you know, has that bedded in properly yet? No. I mean, mm -hmm. UKRI is a new organisation. It's getting that together. The research councils are carrying on, working working well um, with another structure involved. There's there's some work to be done to get that right. What what's the opportunity in this though? Uh, the opportunity that is presented by both UKRI and the fact that as scientists we've all had a shock, I think, about the Brexit situation is. Let's get some really good international plans together, irrespective of whether we end yeah. up hopefully closely associated with Europe in the existing programs. What are the opportunities to use this and the UKRI mechanism to say, what's the international agenda we want to follow? How can we take advantage of, of the fact there are emerging science nations around the world with really quite interesting things going on mm -hmm. and use that power of a unified funding mm -hmm. body to try and do that? And I think that's really where we need, we keep, need to keep looking at that international So you'd argue that actually this machinery has come along in the of time to actually present a more focused I think it has. in terms of the industrial strategy and so on. Well, I, I've been on I've been on several visits uh, to different countries over the past few months, um, learning about how they run things and so on. And all of them are actually looking at UKRI with considerable interest to say they think they ought to do something like that. How do you you you've got? A strange problem, which I never thought uh, after covering like the rise of sage British science in the 80s, I'd ever talk about. But the government is committed to spending a lot more money on science, which is a great thing. But it's quite science operates on quite slow timescales. You've got ministers there who are going to be saying, "Come on, Patrick, you know we, we gave you all that money, haven't you? You know, come up with." some way to deal with superbugs in two years' time, or, you know, there, there's trying to square that circle between ramping up money, making sure it's yeah. being spent properly, and actually making the Treasury think, oh, we do see now why we're putting all this money into science, because it's giving us these wonderful results. Well, uh, 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 and you're absolutely right. I mean, the timescale of things are, are very, uh, very long. And, and the, at the blue sky's end, I think it's a terribly misguided idea to think that's a linear process through to development and implementation. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the Blue Skies research, I haven't got a clue where that's going to go. It's, you know, yeah. Some of it's going to go somewhere really important, some of it's not going to, and almost all of it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. 
Um, so to try and make those sorts of arguments around that end, I think, is, 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 is not, you just need to accept that is the goose yeah. that lays the golden egg and you yeah. want to protect it. But I think we could be far more effective about this, um, and much shorter time scales, actually, about translating some of the later stage things into uh, benefit. And that is why I think that's an important thing to focus on, for exactly the reason you said, that um, you know, it's not unreasonable for Treasury to want to see some return from the science investment. It's not unreasonable for us as taxpayers to want yeah. to see some return. And um, we, so, so whilst we may be one or two in terms of our scientific excellence in terms of research papers in the world, I mean, it's astonishing given our size, but we are one or two. We're not one or two in terms of innovation and ability to, we're maybe five or six or nine, depending on which measure you look. And if you do the ratio of the two, we're something like 22nd in the world. So put some money there, make sure we get that bit um, moving with, with business investment mm -hmm. as well. Then I think you start to get an alignment between the outputs that Treasury and others may, may want. And so I, I, I think that's why UKRI needs to focus in that area. One more um, big issue, and then I'm very keen to open up to, to the audience. Um, we had Michael Gove uh, in the museum earlier this week um, talking about giving really the most comprehensive picture yet of how the climate could change over the next century uh, in the UK. Um, and it's, it's, when you look at the global picture, it's, it's quite alarming at the moment still. Uh, how do you think the UK is doing in general, and do you think we could be doing more, should be doing well, more? Uh, the obvious answer is we could be doing more. Um, there's no, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, we haven't done too badly. I mean, the, this is something that the world, we, we, we're world leading in the Climate Change Act. Um, I think there's been, uh, you know, we, we've got 43% less um, uh, greenhouse gas emission now than in 1990. We've got a big increase in uh, use of renewables to generate electricity. The offshore uh, wind costs have come right down um, and uh, increasing, I think, went up 17% of electricity from that in 16, from 2016 to 17. So I think there's a lot of good things happening. Uh, and we, the UK has actually done really well in that. But um, as the IPCC report mm -hmm. said, none of us are doing enough. I mean, if we, if we want to limit um, temperature rise to 1.5 globally, there's much more that needs to be done. And this needs a very concerted and integrated effort. So I think it would be foolish to say we've done lots of things well in the past, therefore we're OK. We're not. I think on that point. Let's open up to the audience now. We've got a couple of, wait, wait for a microphone and do, as I say, if you're a journalist, do, do say where you're from so Patrick can, you know, if you start asking an arcane question about widgets under Brexit and you're working for Widget Weekly, we sort of understand where you're coming from. So do, do, uh, do put your hand up and, uh, okay, we've got one question here. Hi, I'm Hannah from Cambridge Cancer Genomics. We're a startup, um, and we're looking to sort of help clinicians act sooner um, and improve patient care, basically, on, with cancer treatment. And I just wanted to touch on a point you brought up earlier a little bit about um, your opinion on how best to sort of win over the public to sort of help us uh, overcome these challenges using artificial intelligence. So we, therefore, we do need a lot of data that will come from the public, and hopefully it will feed back into the NHS. But I was wondering about your opinion on how to... Is there going to be a campaign on how to right. 
do that or? Well, the, the biggest uh, risk which, which, you, which you'll know is um, the worry about patient privacy and, and the, well, it's actually two, patient privacy and then the um, anxiety in the NHS that there have been big computer pro projects before which haven't gone well. So those are the two big things, I think, which need to be overcome. Um, and I think uh, on the former, uh, there, this, uh, to my mind, this absolutely needs to be about positioning this in terms of NHS improvement. So where I think the public will um, get concerned if they think their data is being taken off and being used solely for private um, profit and private companies and, and there'll be a mistrust of big companies. But if the uh, notion is, is cemented in the fact that the benefit needs to come back from the, to the NHS, which could be monetary, it could be the um, algorithms and diagnostic tools that come out of this, and that's organised properly, then I think there's a very sensible adult public debate to be had. And I think there does need to be a public debate about this, um, because if we don't get this right, we will um, lose something, w which I think we have, which is the, uh, probably the best data sets in the world both in the NHS and in things like UK Biobank and Genomics England, where we've got large data sets uh, over many years uh, collected, um, including with lots of genomic information. I think we're widely recognised as being at the head of other countries in that. Now we need to get the public dialogue right. Let's have another question. In fact, while, while we're queuing up a uh, question here, I mean, I suppose in the funny sort of way, we've been here before, you know, with GM food. I think when the first... GM food came in, it was to save farmers in Iowa a couple of cents a hectare or something, rather than benefit the consumers with a more nutritious product. And I think they slightly lost the, the plot. So again, you know, data shows benefits. Anyway, fire, fire away. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Okay, sorry, up the back there. No, I think it is I your think it turn. Is your turn. It is your turn. Really, I beg your pardon. Yes, I'm the MC. I'm in charge <laughs> here. Come on. Um, uh, so I'm uh, Sonny Baines from UCL Engineering, and you talked about science and you talked about research. You talked a little bit about benefits to the public, but you didn't specifically say the word engineering. Um, but I'm assuming that's part yeah. of your remit, right? Yeah. So could you say a little yeah. bit about? Uh, Brexit and engineering, perhaps, um, and your worries, your worries for that? Because obviously, although we've talked about the, the problems on the research side, from the engineering side, it's much more serious. Yeah, so, um, in, in, I mean, my fault for not using the word, but I think it was, it was at least implicit in what I was saying, that actually when one thinks about movement through into development and into um, uh, implementation, engineering is absolutely key. And of course, the engineering discovery in this country is a huge part of it as well. So it's absolutely part of my remit and uh, something I feel quite passionate about um, from areas that include, and I think one that's particularly important inside government is systems, systems thinking. I mean, I think systems engineering has a huge amount to offer, not only in terms of all the things we've talked about here, but actually just in the process of how government thinks about tackling and joining up problems. So, um, uh, so that, I, I hope, is clear on that. Now, in terms of engineering and Brexit, I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I do accept that engineering is somehow more affected than, than other areas of science. It absolutely affected in terms of some of the business as aspects of this, which is critical. Um, but so is, so are lots of uh, other, other science-based businesses. Um, all the same issues are there. It's about 
people, it's about the ability to attract talent, it's about the ability to uh, move things across borders. I mean, lots of the supply chain issues in, 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 in companies uh, require moving across borders goodness knows how many times. I know in the, in the pharmaceutical sector it can be 11 times you, you, you cross. So I think, I think the, the practical applications and the people applications and the academic applications are all going to be affected in, in, in a no-deal situation. And the closer we can keep the ties, as, as the Prime Minister said, the, the, the better. So I, I'm not sure I see that as a specific additional engineering challenge. It's quite difficult to define what an engineer is. Anyway, we've got a couple of uh, questions here. Let's uh, hear and then, then the gentleman there with the glasses. Hi, Christina Gallardo, news editor of Research Fortnite. Um, you've spoken about the importance of spending government money on translating discoveries. And I'd like to ask you whether um, you're also going to be making the case for increases in funding for blue skies research, because there is a fair amount of scientists who complain that yeah. uh, there's been flat cash for blue skies research for many years now, and there is a comprehensive spending review coming next year. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about well, that. Well, I think, I think I touched on it, and, and, and um, uh, I'm happy to repeat it. I think it's absolutely essential that we protect something that we are world class at and we fund it properly, which is Blue Skies Research. And I think, personally, it's wrong to try and get uh, Blue Skies Research tied in too closely to this notion of having to describe impact and things like that. I mean, you don't know the impact by definition. And so we need to be a bit smarter, I think, about, about um, deciding what we want to fund in the research space, the early research space, and making sure we look after it properly. And uh, there I do have a view, and this is born, I think, the scars on my back from um, a time at times at GSK, every single um, uh, board meeting, annual board meeting, one of the board directors would ask, um, you know, what's the right amount to spend on R&D? Is it this, is it that, is it something else? He always meant, was it the lower number? But, um, uh, but, but um, one of the things that you know, I had to do was to make sure that the R and the D bit was properly described, because you can't expect the R bit to have an output in a time frame to the point you raise, which is going to be relevant to most of the people asking the question. Therefore, you need to be clear about what your strategy is in relation to R, and you need to stick with it and protect it from the other questions that inevitably will come up about later stuff. So I think our research base across many, many areas of um, science, and I'm using the word science very broadly as in you know, the, the nurse review, is essential to protect and it needs properly funding and we are generally underfunded across the entire space, 1.7% of uh, of GDP with new money coming in from the government and, and, and promising. We need to make sure the research part of that's properly looked after. We've got a question just here. I don't know if we can just whiz the microphone over. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Barrett, so I'm editor of Metal Market magazine. I actually spend most of my life writing about uh, metal prices, but we also take a close interest in the technology side of things. I was particularly interested that you referred to uh, interdisciplinary collaboration between research councils. I'm just wondering how you see that further downstream, if you like, from an in industrial point of view. And two, two, two thoughts sort of uh, trigger that question. Um, one is that um, 
I still find there's a certain amount of um, silo mentality, if you like, between, yeah. let's say, the chemical industry, the oil industry, who thinks they've got a few things that they can show the steel industry, and, and so it goes round in a circle. Uh, but also, um, we, we, we write a lot about artificial intelligence and big data, etc. It's everything everyone wants to talk about in uh, this sort of steel and metal production side of things. Um, and there was a, an AI specialist I was speaking to who actually said that she felt that the biologists had got much better algorithms uh, looking at genes uh, that they could borrow to run a steel plant. So I'm just uh, interested from your uh, perspective, how all that works out, and perhaps what uh, impacts it has for R&D upstream. Any thoughts on that sort of area? Uh, well, so lots of questions in there. I mean, on that last point of um, when one thinks about um, uh, data analytics and understanding processes, how you learn across sciences, I think there are lots of examples there. So if you take um, uh, something like financial instability in, in, in markets, um, I'm sure there are some things you can learn there about instability in biological systems or ecosystems where you know there are corrective mechanisms that have to work sometimes on very fast timescales and um, biological systems don't keep things absolutely steady. They have variability as part of that process. So I'm sure there's all sorts of science there which is going to be important in terms of transferring across from one unexpected field to another unexpected field. In terms of um, interdisciplinary research, I think that what we're seeing with some of the um, ways in which funds are being put together, which is to tackle problems, big problems, inevitably those big problems aren't single disciplines. So I'll, I'll take the examples come up for genomics. I don't think the problem of getting or genetic testing and so on into the, into the NHS, I don't think that's a medical problem. I think the, a lot of the medical things and the biological things have been solved. It's actually everything from social science through to um, uh, a systems engineering problem through to a, um, a, a problem of organizational design. You know, there are things in there that cross boundaries. So if you try and tackle that problem, which I think is part of the issue we've had, from a purely biomedical perspective, you will end up, I think, in the wrong place. And that's true for... Um, uh, thinking about transport of the future uh, is true about thinking about energy and 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 uh, it's interesting that you know companies like BP and so on are massively diversifying in terms of the areas they're thinking about. So I think interdisciplinarity is going to be key, and I think um, in terms of investing in this at the later stages of R and D um, with public money, I think we need to take more of an investment mindset than a reactive grant mindset to try and push some of this. Let's have another question. There's one right at the back over there, Bob. I don't know if you can get the... There we are. Just behind you. Far away. Uh, you've mentioned a few emerging technologies, um, also systems engineering. What are your thoughts on like blockchain technology and how it affects everyday things? Well, uh, so I think blockchain, it, it, it's there's a bit of the AI in that, which is, you know, people say, you, you know, the answer is blockchain. Now, what problem am I trying to solve? I mean, my understanding of, of this, and I do think it's going to be important in certain areas, really important in certain areas, is, you know, blockchain is, is most valuable when, when your problem uh, has two components. One is, um, uh, so although it's got lots of features to it, it seems to me the two features which, which, which make it um, unique are the ability to allow um, uh, uh, multiple uh, 
partners who are not trusted, i.e. they're not within your internal um, uh, um, system, to work together. So that has to be one criteria. You need to have partners who otherwise would not be working on a single trusted system. Uh, and the second thing is it provides a security against uh, failure because you've got multiple copies of the same thing and so you can't um, uh, you can't, um, uh, you won't lose it so easily. Some of the other things like immutability and so on, you can you can replicate within trusted systems in other ways. So I think those are the two things which are the key uh, areas. It's obviously hugely important in certain areas of finance. You could imagine it would be important in other areas. There's a really good example that um, uh, um, somebody's piloting that I heard about recently, uh, looking at the um, f early food supply around abattoirs and the number of people who have to sort of look at different bits of information and um, uh, blockchain turns out to be quite an interesting way to look at that in terms of allowing the information to go through the system uh, to have regulators and others to be able to look at it. Um, so I think uh, where we are with blockchain in many companies and to some extent I think inside government is lots and lots of pilots and not many scaled examples of where this is really going to make a difference. So the challenge is going to be where to pick to scale, I think. Gosh, from blockchain to abattoirs, that makes There's my mind one of them. boggle. So we've got one question here and one at the back over there. So we have this chap here first and then over to the back. Hi. Do you have any involvement with solving global problems in terms of distributing money to, to other countries maybe to help them solve something that we're maybe further ahead with. Um, you know, we're quite a small country on the yeah. global stage in terms of things like plastics and uh, emissions and others, you know, how they deal with it arguably matters more. Yeah, so I think the, the um, Government Office of Science, before, before um, I joined, actually the report came out around that time, uh, did a report on the future of the sea, which, which actually um, uh, really was part of you know, the plastics thing, gave some very clear recommendations as to what should happen. Uh, the Foreign Office has taken the lead in, in, in looking at how that can be implemented. That's clearly not something that's a UK-specific problem. So um, I think the UK has been really good, actually, at thinking about our international um, responsibilities and the international opportunities that follow from that. So we still put a relatively high uh, percentage of spend into um, uh, overseas development. O the ODA spend is, is, is high from the UK, much higher than Germany and other places. And I think it's spent on the whole pretty wisely in terms of uh, helping um, other countries, funds like the Newton Fund, the Global uh, challenges research fund which are used to tackle big problems in other countries I think are good examples of where the UK plays well. The thing I'd like to see on top of that is um, an international fund that really allows us to call to get links with other countries which aren't only around overseas development. I mean, I think that's incredibly important, but it's not the only thing that we should be looking at. So I think that's an area we should feel really proud of in terms of the um, uh, way in which the UK puts a very significant uh, percentage of GDP into spend on science uh, for others. The Ebola problem, which you, know, you may or may not know, there is a horrible outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo at the moment. Why isn't that all over the news like it was for other outbreaks? It's because it's happening in a country which is war-torn, which is impossible to get into in the right way, and, um, and therefore we're not seeing the same reports. 
that's the sort of terrible side of it. The really exciting side of it, largely from money from the Wellcome Trust, from our odour spend and so on, is Ebola vaccines are there. You know, we've supported the development of those through companies like Merck and J&J &J and others. And uh, those vaccines are being used now in, 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 real, in real situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and almost certainly the reason why this hasn't blown up into a huge, huge thing. And that's a, a, that's a very important UK contribution, I think. So we've got another question at the back here. And um, oh, we've, have we got one down at the front here? Or Yes, yes, we have. Good, right. So, and then we might have time for one more question at the end. Go on, fire away. Hi, uh, Mitch Stowers from Nature magazine. Uh, given how, given how um, busy the Prime Minister is with Brexit, how often do you actually get to talk to her about science? And also... Almost uh, every morning. Yeah? <laughs> we have a long chat. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Uh, is that true? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so no. just a related question to that is, uh, with all eyes on Brexit, again, like how focused is the government on other sort of big science-based threats, such as the Ebola outbreak that could you know, go international or sort of, uh, you know, chemical poisonings and attacks on the UK soil as well. I mean, how, how much how much are people looking into that, given that a, it was... A lot. I've just said, I mean, I think that in the Ebola thing, um, I, I, so I chair something called the Scientific Advice for Government Emergencies Committee, which then feeds into COBRA, which is the uh, government uh, emergency response uh, group and we've had uh, two meetings um, uh, looking at the Ebola outbreak over the period. I mean, there's been lots of other activity as well, but that tells you the sort of central seriousness in which we've taken this. We've uh, coordinated to look at the uh, use of vaccines and so on. Uh, uh, we had multiple meetings, obviously, around the um, Salisbury event on, on chemical uh, episodes. So there's been a lot of um, scientific interest right into the heart of government. Of course, those feed into ministerial processes as well. So there's been actually, I, I've been deeply impressed, in fact, by the way in which the uh, uh, government works in terms of these emergency situations and the intensity of ministerial and high-level interest in getting this right. So that's been something that's been a very positive experience for me. And, um, uh, and of course, the Prime Minister is extremely busy, but um, she spent time with the Council for Science and Technology, which I chair, um, and we had a, a very uh, a big discussion around, uh, around science priorities, which led to the, the, uh, um, some of the comments she made in the speech at Jodrell Bank she gave earlier in the year. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I was with her on a, a visit to the Nordic, uh, to Oslo, uh, for a meeting of the Nordic and Baltic countries uh, around health tech. And um, uh, uh, she was you know, immersed in science for 24 hours in that. And uh, right, that's right in the middle of all the other things going on. And uh, she's very interested in, 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 in where science can play a part. But I mean, you know, the premise of your question, uh, is government distracted with other things? Yes. Another question just here. And then there's the last one here, or if we're super quick, we might get one there as well. Go on, fire away. Um, hi, I'm Catherine. I'm not a journalist, but I thought I might, uh, I should say that I'm a civil servant. Um, but I'm volunteering tonight at the Lakes, which is why I'm wearing the Science Museum top. Um, I kind of, I would like to hear a bit more about um, your background and your career path, and especially um, kind of the move from GSK to being government chief scientific advisor, because I, and sort of how that came about, and your thoughts, sort of maybe a bit of comparison between the two. Um, yeah, just having a bit more background on that. 
that I, I loved science at school. I decided I wanted to be a doctor because I thought it integrated science in a way that appealed to me. So I went to medical school. I became a doctor. I decided I did love research, so I went into research as well. So I, did, I, I was a clinical academic. I was head of medicine at, at UCL. And if you'd asked me 13 years ago, I was going to be a clinical academic for the rest of my life. Uh, I loved it, and I loved UCL. Um, and I had a chance encounter uh, with somebody who said they were stepping down as head of uh, drug discovery or R&D at GSK, and had I ever thought about joining the industry, I said no, and I didn't want to, and I cycled home that night. And I thought, actually, why did I say that? Why, why, why aren't I interested in that? And so I made a rather sort of, uh, so I'm the worst person ever to give careers talks. <laughs> <laughs> I had no thought about it, so I just thought, actually. Journalist, you've got your headline. That, okay. that, <laughs> that sounds quite interesting. So I, uh, I, I, did, I, I applied for that and, and, and went there, and that was a very interesting time for me. It really opened my eyes to all sorts of things. And I'm afraid my move to this job was equally um, unplanned. Um, I, um, been invited to apply to be on the Council for Science and Technology, which I've mentioned, and I went along for my interview for that. And uh, as I was leaving, somebody said, we're going to be looking for a new government chief scientific advisor. Are you interested? I said, no, again. <laughs> <laughs> and I went home and I thought, well, I don't know why I said that, because maybe I am interested in it. And so I applied for that. So it's a terribly poorly thought out career, is all I can say. <laughs> There's another question just here, and then the very last one back up there, and I think we'll have to wrap up, unfortunately, far away. Hi, I just wanted to ask um, what your thoughts are trying to encourage more young researchers to stay in academia. Um, a lot of my, I'm doing a PhD at the moment in um, synthetic organic chemistry, and a lot of my peers tend to leave academia because of the stability of the job or like, career progression and having to move around quite a lot. So I just wondered what the government were going to do to... <laughs> what are we going to do? I, I mean, I recognise the issue, and I think it's. I, I particularly think it's important, actually, um, in terms of diversity in science. Um, so I, I, I do worry that we we don't have a diverse workforce. We don't make things easy for people from different backgrounds and with different uh, um, educational experiences, and we don't make things easy for women. And it's still appalling in engineering. I mean, the figures are absolutely appalling. Mm. Um, uh, in terms of our gender balance. And I think that's a lot to do with how we think about career structures and how we think about um, uh, the, working the work environment. And I think that is a key area, and it is something that I want, I want to um, be part of looking at. Very last question, this chat just up here. Getting a little bit of You're feedback, bit of feedback actually, yeah. if they can. I hope it's a really good question. No, no pressure, okay? No worries. Um, again, another civil servant here, so um, we seem to be in here in number. Um, so my question is really about government itself, actually, and how you're looking intros introspectively. So um, government's often accused about being behind the curve, um, coming to the party quite late on a number of um, key science technology issues and how it embeds science technology internally. What are your thoughts on how we're going to look internally within government and improve the use of science, te science technology to aid us in our day-to-day -day business. Well, I, 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 I do think, and you may have seen, there was a, a really brilliant article, I thought, written by Kofi Annan in Nature um, earlier this year um, on... Can we do anything about this feedback? Yeah, sorry, the feedback, uh, I don't know if someone point. can... Um, in which he described um, uh, how data visualisation had allowed him to understand problems uh, that he knew existed, but didn't, couldn't see the trends or the directions and couldn't really see what to do. 
And he wrote in the article about how data visualization had changed his outlook as a policymaker and somebody who had to make um, decisions on things. And I think that um, uh, the use of data visualization and the ability to bring that into the hands of policymakers would make a massive difference, number one. And the second area I've mentioned is I think trying to look at problems through systems engineering lens could make a, a big difference as well. So those are two areas I'm very interested in trying to push on. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and say that my aim in my tenure as chief government chief scientist has changed the entire way government works but I think those are two two areas that I think we could push on and and could make progress and they'd be practical helpful things to, to how we uh, uh, how things work across Whitehall but it, you know these are not easy and uh, you know frankly uh, GlaxoSmith Climber I was is a company of 110,000 people that's quite a big company to try and get your head around making these changes Whitehall of course is 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 complex times 10. So you don't see yourself being replaced by a deep neural net very soon then, Patrick? Uh, <laughs> not <laughs> a serious question, don't <laughs> I think, sadly, that is all we've got time for. Uh, thank you so much to the ABSW, who are going to be organizing uh, some drinks afterwards. Uh, thank you to the audience uh, for brilliant uh, questions. And just finally, please give a big hand to Patrick Valance. Fantastic. Thank you. Well done. Sorry about the...